Welcome to Important, Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett. And I'm Brian Colbert Kennedy. And this is the podcast where we dive into a specific topic or question affecting everyone on the planet right now or in the next 10 years or so. Uh, if it can kill us or it can turn us into superhumans, uh, we are in. Our guests are scientists, doctors, engineers, professors, politicians, astronauts, even a reverend. Uh, and we work together towards action steps our listeners can take with their voice, their vote, and their dollar. Uh, this is your friendly reminder that you can send questions, thoughts, and feedback to us on Twitter at importantnotimp, mm-hmm. or email us at funtalk at importantnotimportant.com. That's right. Uh, this week's episode asks, Brian, what are the energy requirements of well-being? It's a very good question. Mm-hmm. Our guest today is Professor Julia Steinberger. She is a professor of social ecology and ecological economics at the University of Leeds School of Earth and Environment. Her uh, research examines the connections between resource use, uh, energy and materials, greenhouse gas emissions, and societal performance, economic activity, and human well-being. Basically, what happens when you drive your fucking car every day? Uh, That's just good. Uh Um, She is interested in uh, quantifying the current and historical linkages between resource and socioeconomic parameters and identifying alternative development pathways to guide the necessary transition to a low carbon society. You reading those things is one of my favorite parts of the Linkages podcast. is a word? Yep. Okay. All right. Uh, Professor Steinberger is the recipient of the Leverhulme uh, Research Leadership Award for her research project, Living Well Within Limits, uh, investigating how universal health, uh, human well-being might be achieved within planetary boundaries. Basically, are we going to make it? <laughs> um, she's been a researcher at everywhere, everywhere. I guess, uh, Vienna, Zurich, MIT, and she's been published 40 times since 2009, which is just one behind Brian. Yeah, but she'll get there. Yep. She'll, she'll, she seems great. I have faith. Um, you know, I forgot to mention, uh, to her, I think she would really enjoy it. I'll have to send to her, uh, this, this tracks closely to our conversation with Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson and the, whose Ted talk just dropped. Yeah. Um, uh, how do we use the ocean without using it up? Which is the same idea. Yeah, very, you know? very true. Let's all be well and also not fuck everything up at the same time. Just, There's got to be a stop, way. Just stop, just stop, right? Uh, <sighs> but this was hopeful and fascinating, and we talked about Winnie the Pooh, and uh, man, she's great. Yeah, these are, every episode is my favorite episode, but this was really like a great episode. <laughs> They're not all your favorite episodes. <laughs> this one was pretty dope, though. Very cool. All right, let's go talk to Professor Steinberger. Let's do it. Our guest today is Professor Julia Steinberger, and together we're going to talk about the energy requirements of well-being. What does it mean? Uh, Professor, welcome. Thanks for having me. We are very excited to have you. Um, uh, Let our listeners know who you are and what you do, Doctor. So I am a researcher who doesn't really know what my topic is anymore, but I try to understand uh, across engineering, economics, and social sciences, I try to understand what is the amount of physical stuff that we take from the environment, um, in this case, energy, and what do we get from it in terms of well-being outcomes? So if you want to live a decent life and have a decent standard of living, how much stuff do you need? That feels like a really timely question, Yeah. Uh, just because we're ruining everything. And also because, uh, have you guys, do you guys have the Marie Kondo phenomenon over there yet? The art of tidying up? Is that hit? Yes, it's, it's, it certainly has. And um, I think about sparking joy and very few things spark joy, but sometimes they're good enough, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, but that's, a, it's a good sign. And it's funny since that's exploded. Now it's a Netflix series. Oh yeah. It, uh, I, I find I've seen people and talked to friends who are applying that phrase to, to I think, uh, places that, that weren't originally intended, but it's really interesting. Like, do I take on this work project? Right. Does it spark joy? Which is a really interesting way to sort of cull and guide yourself. Anyways, we can yeah, dig no, into it that is, a little more. Obviously related. Um, yeah. Cool. Very cool. Yeah, I'm very excited about this conversation today. And, and so, Julia, uh, what we do, and reminder to everyone out there, uh, we're going to go over um, some quick context for the topic and the question, uh, and then dig into some uh, action-oriented questions that uh, you know give us a reason why we should give a shit about what we're talking about, and uh, and of course what everybody can uh, out there can do about it, can do to help. Does that sound good? Sounds fantastic. Awesome. Uh, so, Julie, we do start with one important question, and you did say you've been cheating and listening to the podcast, which I both <laughs> thank you for. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so, instead of saying "tell us your life story," we like to ask, uh, Professor, why are you vital to the survival of the species? Yeah, the correct answer, the accurate <laughs> answer is I hope I'm not. But if I am, if I have a unique uh, 
selling point, as it were. I think that my unique selling point is that I, I am uncomfortable with things. So I go around, uh, my, my spirit animal is Eeyore. Oh. Do, do, you, do you remember Pooh Bear? Okay, um, I have, a, so I have e- three e- small children, very much so. Right. So Eeyore is the, is the character that's always not quite happy about things. If you throw him a party, he'll complain about something. So that that's basically me. <laughs> and I've been complaining my way through academia and life. So I started out as a as an astrophysicist, but that was too big for me. And then I went to experimental particle physics, and that was too small for me. I'm like the Goldilocks of academia. <laughs> I, uh, I then decided that I was interested in the interaction between economics and the environment and what we're doing with the environment, because that seemed to be very important. And uh, so I, then I started just trying to learn about that. And the more I learned about the technical side of what we're doing, the more I understood that the actually the technology is probably mostly there, that we probably don't have, that's probably not where the biggest problems are in terms of developing new widgets, that the problem really is, lies in the economy. And then when I started learning more and more about the economy, I decided that the problem was probably really political, that the economy is how we express things politically. And so now I'm sort of gone into like, the philosophy of well-being and political economy, and goodness knows where it's going from there. But that's my story, and and I think that the reason that I'm necessary to the survival to the of the human race, if I am, is because I now can sort of articulate these big problems we have, and sort of say, actually, this is what it looks like from all these different perspectives, and none of them is entirely satisfying, but if we use our, our big enough brains, then we can maybe try to understand things better and always be a little bit dissatisfied about the easy answers. I don't like easy answers. Uh, they make me very agitated. So I, I try to make things a little bit more, more realistic in that sense. I, I love that. And, and I, I, I feel like there's a, uh, and sticking with, with the poo themes here, <clears throat> there, there is an element of dissatisfaction with answers, which is just science, right? All you're trying to do is prove yourself wrong over and over again. Uh, exactly. Our job is to make mistakes. Right, exactly. Which over, I feel like all the time. Uh, is, is so misunderstood uh, these days. Uh, but also, it, it's a really interesting parallel track to curiosity, which is just never being satisfied, yeah. you know? And, and I do find uh, that those things are, are helpful and, and people like you and, and Eeyore certainly uh, can help great scientists. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Can, can help, uh, can help drive, drive so much in an era where we do need that. And especially, I love the way you've been around the block per se, uh, academically, um, because a, a, a varied perspective like that, like you said, can help to bring so much to a conversation. Let's hope. Let's Dis- hope. Dissatisfied with the easy answer. That is my favorite thing. I always, I always like to think that if anything in my life, it came easy, then it's like, hold on, there's probably a better way to do this. Right. Probably something more out there. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, let's make it more complicated. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, that's exactly my wife's favorite thing about me is when I go, but, and uh, uh-huh. it drives her nuts. Mine too is my favorite thing about you too. Oh yeah, I'm yeah. sure. I'm sure. Yeah, you guys in your support group, your Quinn support group. Um, all right, so let's, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a little context against the wall here <clears throat> just to get uh, all of our listeners up on the same page. Please, uh, Professor, jump in, correct us, hang up, run away, uh, whatever you feel the need to do. So here's the thing. Um, life uh, can be very unjust. Not for me, as a white guy in America, or Brian as a white guy in America, or, or, or really most of our listeners. Uh, women, of course, have always had it more difficult, despite the fact that, you know, uh, they, they made us, and yeah. we, are, we don't uh, exist without them. Nope. Further down the spectrum, uh, disabled folks and people of color, it's not even close, is it? Americans, uh, on the whole, are, are richer than the, most of the world, uh, even our most disadvantaged folks. Of course, it doesn't feel that way to them, nor should it, uh, because uh, things are more unequal than they've, than they've really ever been. Uh, but elsewhere, it, it really is truly uh, shocking. And as the global population has increased and keeps increasing, and inequality is skyrocketing uh, and becoming more stark, uh, and the resources have become more in demand, often on demand in 2019, uh, those differences are are growing. So we're we're facing a century where the population is set to peak at, at about 10, maybe 10 and a half billion folks, and then either drop or hold steady. And there's a big conversation to that, of course. Uh, some people say we're not having enough babies. Uh, if babies don't turn into workers, the economy doesn't hold up. On the other hand, if too many babies turn into too many workers and there's more buying power in the world, well, now we've got a greater consumption of resources. We're back to square one. So again, we're facing a century where the demand for these tangible 
uh, finite resources will become more pressing, not just because of abundance, uh, but also because of uh, scarcity, because of massive change, because of uh, natural disasters, because of a lack of or a new lack of uh, sanitation and or drinking water or wheat because of heat and the inability to escape it for a lot of folks. We've talked about that before uh, because of, I mean, barreling down the pipe automation and artificial intelligence. And so some of us uh, have tried with actual uh, foresight, which is rare these days to take a step back and ask, what's the basic denominator here? What's the requirement? And simultaneously and sometimes adversely, the fundamental right, the fundamental energy right of a basic citizen of this planet. And further, can we actually supply that to everyone uh, with our current resources and technologies and, and policies? And, and if not, or if so, what changes do we need to make to get there? What sacrifices need to be made? And of course, finally, what, what happens if we can't or we, or we choose not to, or the people in power choose not to? Um, so with that for a little context, I want to dig in with the professor here on the energy requirements of well-being. So, Professor Steinberger, I hope I didn't totally massacre that. Uh, not entirely. I've got a comparative religion slash anthropology slash philosophy background. So these are questions I'm both familiar with, but anxious to dig further into. Um, so can you take a step back and tell us exactly how you kind of came to this question? Well, first of all, you, you expressed it really well. And the only wish I have is that all from your lips to, to all the funding agencies in the world, <laughs> for me, these are the, the really big, the, the biggest question is how do we carry, you know, the nine or 10 billion over the, over the threshold of the next couple of centuries without really damaging things and get ourselves into a better and more stable state of hopefully stably declining population that is me messing much less with the biosphere. How I came to this question is is basically by uh, actually the 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 central point is one of the economies. So we always come back to the what is the economy doing? And in my field, which is ecological economics, um, one of the things we look for, we hope for, um, most of us have sort of given up in despair for for the reasons I'll tell you, is that we look for the possibility of the economy, which is what we what we think sort of sits in the middle of society and the environment. In between society and the environment, you have the economy. And that you hope that the economy is delivering good stuff to society without damaging the environment too much. And in terms of what you you the way you 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 phrase the problem when you were talking about great inequality, uh, great harm that's done to people in terms of their life chances, in terms of you know being being ill, not being cared for, having very very hard circumstances. That's the two faces of the economy as well. The economy or helps us organize the things we do for each other. And can do so very effectively. So all of a sudden, because there's an economy, I'm able to, you know, have access to lots of people's work and benefit from their ac actions, really. Mm -hmm. um, but it also is very exploitative and very extractive and very harmful. So we have this really two-faced monster creature in the middle. And when we when we were looking at the economy, there was this dream of decoupling. There was this dream that the economy could grow and grow and grow, but somehow we wouldn't use as much resources or we would even use declining levels of resources. And because there's been a lot of inefficiency built into things, um, you do see in some cases, for instance, economic the economy growing and resource use sort of stabilizing, but it doesn't go further than that. So we really don't see the massive amount of reduction in resource use uh, that accompanies current economic growth. That doesn't seem to be there, but by accident almost, I was looking at other data. I was also looking at not just economic data, I was looking at things like life expectancy or education rates. And what was really interesting is there, you could see decoupling. So in this quest for looking for the economy, not using more, you know, the economy growing, but using less and less resources, there was really very little evidence for that. But there was massive evidence for this other form of decoupling so that we're able to somehow provide health, provide education, provide the basic services that people need at much lower levels of resource use year on year on year. And that's quite amazing. And that's one of the few things that I know of that gives me hope for this next century is that somehow we're seeing efficiency in that system. And so the next part of the mission for me was to try to understand what underlies that growing efficiency. Efficiency. What? What are the? What are? If we want to understand how much we need, what is it that actually decides that? What's going on there? And um, I think the answer is it depends. But that's usual with research. 
Yeah. I, I, yeah, that, that's, that is the way research goes, right? Is, is we, we find out what we don't, what we don't know. Yeah. Well, I, I guess the thing, one of the things I can say is that the, you, you see a great diversity. That's the other thing is that in terms of the relationship, you know, if you just look at uh, GDP per capita versus, uh, so income per capita versus energy per capita, you see this hugely correlated system. There is extremely little variation in it. You know, you, the, it, by the time you use um, trade corrected measures, so including the energy embodied in goods and services we consume, there is very, very little daylight there uh, between economic wealth and material requirements. But if you look at well-being indicators, so things like health, things like um, you know, education again, there's a lot more variation. So there's obviously a lot more diversity in how these things can be supplied and organized. And so that means that how we how we organize our economies and our societies and our government matters a lot. And uh, that's these are some of the things I'm trying to find out a bit more about now. Is is this something that economists and policy policymakers um, are actually paying attention to? Uh, how, you know, how practical are, are the results here? I hope they will be practical and I wish they were paying attention to them. Mm. But I think that a lot of policymakers um, are still stuck in a vision, you know, of the economy delivering well-being. That uh, they really have this perspective on the, the, way, the way that they have understood that we translate the good things in life is it comes down to dollars in pocket. Right. And that's a really, really bad way to measure well-being, as it turns out. It's, it's, it's quite disastrous for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, it hides huge inequalities when you're looking at averages. Uh, it um, measures goods as well as bad. So if you have to spend a lot of money on your out-of-pocket on health care because you don't have good health insurance at all, then that counts as GDP per capita. And if you spend it on, you know, spending a nice day out and having a picnic with your family, that counts as GDP per capita, right. but it counts as less, right? Whereas one thing is causing you grief and stress and horror, and you're really afraid about it. And the other one, that's a very nice thing. So, so, so I think that policymakers really still have this idea that we grow our way out of problems, that the more income we have, the better everything is going to be. And we solve all problems through the market. And my perspective in terms of what I'm learning is very different is that we actually, a lot of these things, in fact, shouldn't be produced through the market, should not be delivered through the market, because that is not going to have the right priorities in terms of it uh, reaching the people who really need it. And that's something that I can see very directly in terms of uh, the work that my research group is doing in the United Kingdom, where we have a lot of privatization of basic services like buses and electricity and water even is privatized. And you really see that that accentuates poverty and inequality. It makes life much harder for people because we have these privatized systems that don't uh, you know, they don't care. They just want, they just want to recover, recover revenue and bill people. They don't actually care about what people living a decent life and in terms of the things they really need to have access to. It's so weird how that sounds like yeah. our healthcare system. Yeah. Hmm. Sounds so familiar. weird. Um, I like to do this every once in a while, professor, if you could talk to me like I'm a first grader, uh, how do you, how do you define well-being versus an economist versus a regular person? And, and you were just mentioning your, your perspective. Why is your perspective different? So we we kind of needed. Well, remember, I'm 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 a dumb physicist, right? So just just <laughs> imagine how easy, yeah, right. So just imagine how like how far this is. You know, I can do things like understand, you know, billiard balls banging into each other, right? Sort of that level of stuff. And then they're like, oh, so if you want to understand well being, well, you might as well go back to Aristotle, and you now have to go back. So you have to basically, if you if you're if you're entering the debate about what is well-being, you're actually picking fights with people who have been dead for thousands <laughs> of years, which always seems a little bit unfair. Uh -huh. And 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 uh, but it's fun at the same time. It's fun because, for instance, Aristotle, he's great. He's got this fantastic definition of well-being that's all about social esteem and social relations and like, you know, some of these beautiful pages on how he sees the human condition. And then like two pages later, it's like, Oh yes, but of course we need slaves and women should stay in the kitchen. You're like, wow, right, yeah, we're, thank you. Look, I, I, I love reading those guys and and digging in, but you know, Aristotle, Plato, Plato Socrates, all, all those. But we are very happy to to cherry pick what we need <laughs> right. uh, and what works for the situation. Yeah, I think I think, and you know, and you, you at the same time you, you have to admire him for being honest about it. At least, at least he's not some kind of hypocrite. He's just laying it all out there for anyway. So so. 
So anyway, so I've had to go back and do lots of learning. And one of the things that's very interesting is that there are all these different definitions of well-being. So, And you can think about it from a policy perspective. You can think about it from a social perspective, from a psychological perspective, from an economic perspective. You have all these different ideas. And one of the most interesting things to me is that they basically come down to two schools of thought that, in fact, the, the versions we understand come down come from ancient Greece. Um, there's there's this idea of eudaimonic well-being and hedonic well-being. Mm. And I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing those right. But eudaimonic well-being comes from Aristotle, and it's basically saying we need to flourish in society. The thing we need to be well is we need to be able to function well in society. And descendants of that include, for instance, the capabilities approach of Amartya Sen and Martha Nussbaum, who, who are both um, a uh, Nobel Prize winning an economist and a world famous philosopher. And so that, that's, that, that strain of thought sort of percolates down to our time. Uh, very clearly. And then the hedonic thought, which was Epicure and the people he was uh, associated with, which has to do with the well-being being um, about pleasant emotions, a balance, you want more. It's, the, it's, it's actually the definition that we're used to thinking about. It's happiness. Right. It's It's an instantaneous gratification. And you know, that you don't want to be inconvenienced, you don't want somebody to poke you with a needle, and at the same time, you want nice things and to eat lots of chocolate. It's sort of that <laughs> that view of it. But I think, and it's a very individual view, it's it's really you as an individual, how do you go out and sell, get as much um, happiness baubles there are in the world? Whereas, the, whereas the, the this other perspective is really a social perspective. It's how do we allow each other to achieve some of the things we want to do in life, whatever you want to do, will you be? Is your society, is your environment allowing you to achieve that? Do you have the education you need? Do you have the information you need? Do you have the food and the health circumstances you need? So, all of those things. Once there's the uh, and the specific definition I use of it is the theory of human need of Ian Guff, who's actually a dear colleague from London is that once you've achieved a certain threshold of something, there's this idea of sufficiency. Once you've achieved a certain threshold along a certain number of dimensions, you're probably going to have a chance at life. You might not be happy. It doesn't mean everything's going to be easy for you. You might try to do stuff. It might not succeed. But you have a chance to go out and do the things that you might want to do. You might you have a chance to have friends. You have a chance to lead as healthy a life as you can. You have a chance to interact with your society. You have a chance to change things and all, whatever you might want to do, you will have that opportunity. But if anything is missing, if you have deprivation in any single one of these di dimensions, that will harm you. And that will harm your chances to do what you want to do in life. So that's sort of the definition that we're going with because it has this concept of sufficiency. At some point, you have enough and things are probably going to be okay. I, I, I love that. Uh, I think as a, as a, as a philosophy, it, it's, it's, it's edging more towards uh, uh, some specifics and some practical elements, but um, but but that that feels like a guiding moral philosophy that that can start to make sense and start to see where it's measuring up and and where it's not. So what so what are we like? What should we specifically be aiming for? You know, for this lowest common denominator that that everyone deserves. I like to function so, well in society. That's that's I like. So that. interestingly, the the sustainable development goals have an have an articulation of it, um, but I would argue that they that the sustainable the, so the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals have things like good health and well being or gender equality. So these are all um, you know worthy goals. The problem with them is that they sort of mix up, and they and they obviously have a policy significance. But the problem with them is they make up mix up from our perspective what you want as an outcome that everybody needs to, 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 be, to have to be able to function and the way you get there. So we we're trying to be careful and not mix up the goal with the means. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so the means might be, you know, uh, for instance, if you need to travel to go from uh, your house to your workplace, you might do so in a huge SUV. And then you would say, I need a lot of energy and materials to get to work, mm -hmm. or you might just walk there if it's close enough, and then you would use hardly anything. So what we're not we're we're trying to interrogate how it's delivered. So the way that you actually choose to do things that's a means, um, not an end. And so the the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals sort of mix those up. But so we're talking about things like health. We're talking about things like 
Um, adequate food and water, obviously. Prote- a protective environment or a safe environment is very important. So a safe environment at work, mm-hmm. a safe environment in the house. And that includes both physical and social aspects. We're talking about specific categories of people who need specific things. So for instance, children have to have an extra level of protection. Women need an extra level of protection, especially during uh, childbearing years. Um, We're also talking about mental health, about cultural understanding, cognitive understanding, and appropriate education are really important. So we need a sufficient education level so that people can navigate their society um, and not be confused or disenfranchised or taken advantage of. And so that they also have a chance. One of the things that we like to see is this idea um, that Ian Guff puts in of uh, critical autonomy. Which the idea there is that once you've learned, once you have enough education, once you have enough awareness of your of your society, that you can actually think back on it and say, you know what, this was pretty good, or maybe, but maybe it's not good enough. Maybe I want to change things. And that you have the power to change things in your own society. So these are some of the things that we're talking about. And then you have to translate. In, if you're thinking about policy or if you're thinking about measuring them, then you have to translate them to indicators, translate them to specific policy measures to make them happen. Right. Sure, sure. And, and, and obviously, just by asking this question, you're exposing something that's incredibly complicated because this, the situations and circumstances and economies and, and policies and, uh, again, digging into anthropology, I mean— the, the cultural touchstones and religious beliefs, all these things are so different everywhere, as they should be, right? We don't want some monochromatic society. That's not, that's not the goal. Um, th- that is theoretically one of the things that makes America great and makes all the different places in, in Europe so great. You can take a train and go uh, two hours and go to a, an entirely different right. uh, culture. And, and a- Africa is very similar in that respect. And Asia is very similar in, in that respect. Um, but I, I, I wonder, you know, and again, this is not a task I'm interested in being able to tackle, but it does feel like the more specific we get, the more people can get on board and see where it's working and where it's not, you know, sort of de- defining measurables. But again, that is this incredibly difficult and complicated task. But, I, I, you know, I wonder how, if the, the more we boil it down to the basics, as opposed to saying like, oh, look, we need another 120 things because of... Uh, you know, the, the way uh, lithium mining is going in Congo, you know, it's, et cetera, et cetera. It, mm. It's so, it's so complicated because that's something that doesn't apply in other places. But, but what, what are those specific basics so that, so that we can look out and say, I mean, look, the question, the bigger question is, is like, are we capable of providing these things right now with the resources and the growing yeah. population or not? But uh, yeah. I want to dig into the specifics of how we measure those things, because when we're looking at economic justice and climate justice and environmental justice and things like that, um, you know, one of the conversations we had recently was about how, you know, fucked up heat is getting on the coasts of America and how there's Absolutely. not enough trees in the inner cities. And so people literally cannot escape, uh, you know, disadvantaged folks yep. and, and people of color cannot escape the heat. Like that is nowhere a, to go. They, they literally have nowhere to go. Right. Cause they don't have air conditioning. Yep. So it, it, it's different every place, but I want to try to, I'm curious if you've identified some specifics where you go like these things are integral everywhere. So that's what we're trying to do with these things, with the with the categories I was just talking about. What right. we're trying to do is we're trying to say these broad categories are necessary. So these broad categories of human needs, they will be translated into some equivalent, no matter where we go, no matter mm-hmm. the culture, no matter the history. And, you know, if they're his, in histories where, for instance, uh, women are very discriminated against or children have very difficult conditions, well, those are those we would consider to be historical times and places where human needs were not satisfied. But what we're trying to distinguish, and this is something that has really been put forward by, um, again, Ian Gov, Len Doyle, and Max, uh, Manfred Max Neef, is that we differentiate the, the human need itself from the way it is satisfied. Mm-hmm. And the way it is satisfied, we, we, get, we have a word for this because we're academics. Sure. We, call it, we call it satisfiers. So satisfiers are the thing that it changes all over the world. It changes from city to city. It changes from culture to culture. Sure. From fam- different families might have different satisfiers. And so then the question becomes: Okay, how do we understand uh, satisfiers? How do we understand how people are currently right. doing things and how they could do them differently? And to do that kind of research, I mean, it becomes it becomes really interesting, but it becomes really tricky as well because you don't necessarily get um, perfect data everywhere. But mm-hmm. you, what you can do is you can go into communities and ask them 
okay, given these human needs, do you agree that they're important? And generally people do. How do you use energy to satisfy them? And we, what we ask specifically about is we ask specifically about energy services. We ask about uh, the things you get from energy, like mobility mm-hmm. or thermal comfort, you know, warm enough, cold and cool enough environment, um, illumination. So we ask, we ask them, how do, how do you translate energy services to human need satisfaction? And then we get really interesting results that are Entirely dependent, for instance, if we did it uh, presumably in, in Los Angeles in areas where people don't have enough, uh, where it, it never gets cool enough and people have no way to escape it, they would they would be talking about how they really need cooling for their to be able to to, to live a decent right. life, and that would become a big issue that we could talk about. And it almost seems like it's as much as 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 you you folks because of your. Your, your education and your professional uh, experience are, are the best to go into these areas. But I wonder if there's also a way to to in, empower local people because they, they just know these situations more intuitively to, to train them and empower them to ask those questions and identify uh, both further questions that needs to be asked and, and, and practical answers to them uh, in their communities yeah. themselves. Um, you know, just yeah, yeah. There's, there's such a history of, and, and my sister's, you know, the, she's a thousand times better person than I am, has gone and built uh, schools uh, for, for kids with AIDS in Africa and things like that. And, and, and trust is such a big part of that. Uh, it's like, are, you, are, are we empowering those people to do those things because they're going to trust those, those, those folks more? So I'm curious if that's an element of it. Yes. And this is something that I have to give credit to my uh, my uh, PhD student and now postdoc, the wonderful Lena Brand-Korea, because she decided to make that part of her mission as part of her PhD. She started from a very engineering perspective. Oh, let's look at energy efficiency. Mm-hmm. And then she was like, oh, no, we need to do things <laughs> differently. We need to think about this differently. And she, what she did is she adapted um, this, this, uh, this research process, which is called human scale development which was developed by Manfred Max Neef. And he was running these workshops in, in the Andes uh, throughout Latin America. And it's really about getting the local community to come up with a realization of the current situation they're in, the, cur- the situation they would like to be in, and how to get from one to the other. So what kind of plans and programs they would like to develop uh, for themselves. And so it's actually a process. So um, in terms of the in terms of the person leading the workshop, maybe that's still somebody who, who you know, has the PowerPoint. No, it's not PowerPoint, it's just flip charts or whatever, but who still goes into the community to run them. But in terms of the process and what comes out, it's really very much up to that community to decide what, what they think is important. And what's really interesting is by the, the process of reflecting on, you know, these basic needs, the things that we really uh, hold to heart when, we, when, we, in, when it's come time to achieving our human potential. And how we currently achieve them. And, and Max Neef has this really interesting idea, with which I think is actually really important for the U.S., of negative satisfiers. Some of the ways we satisfy our current needs are negative to other needs. Mm. Can you give an example of and, that? Absolutely. Driving in cars. So people in America, <laughs> what do you mean? Americans drive. So when you go from point A to point B, you might be satisfying a need, for instance, get to work or... Right get food, you know, you need food, you need to go to the grocery store, but then you're doing it in a negative way because you're doing all sorts of things that end up causing you harm either directly or indirectly. Or somebody else. In terms of your, or, or somebody else harm. Um, and you know, in terms of your health, because you're not moving in terms of the health of your own health and people around you through air pollution, through climate change, because that's really going to harm millions upon millions of people Mm -hmm. down the line. And so, so you're, you're, you're doing these things and, and it's taking time from you and it's also taking human interaction away from you, right? You're, you're doing all these things and you're isolated in your car and that was, is something that becomes a negative satisfaction, something that shapes your life, but it's not really bringing you something that's very positive. And then the question is, can you identify those negative satisfiers and say, okay, well, how, how can we change things? How can we try to organize this differently? And this is something that I'm finding throughout the different strains of research is the way we organize our lives, the way we organize our economic activities, mm-hmm. Or it really matters in terms of how much stuff we need to live well. I think, and I think that if we focused on that, we could get to much, much lower levels of energy requirements, and we'd we'd be, you know, simply by just thinking about reorganizing ourselves with current technology, doing things 
quite quite differently. Yeah, I mean, I think if 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 we walked up to random people on the street and didn't play this podcast or introduce you to them and said, "Is driving in Los Angeles a negative satisfier?" giving them zero context, they would they would, <laughs> first of all, you couldn't walk up on walk up to them on the street because no car. one right. fucking walks on the street. On foot. They're all in their car. That's right. And, that's right. And it's it's literally days of their fucking life that's gone. I mean, it's an it's an awful place um but no i mean it's it's insane but you're well, right I, it's but but there's so the the choice to take uh the car to go to the grocery store which seems necessary has so many re- reverberations uh both for you like you said you're sitting for an hour right. not great um yeah. and 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 the pollution and the traffic and all those things it's it we have to start and you're taking just, space away from the city right yeah. you're you're also taking you're 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 putting just literally putting distance between yourself and everything else so but i think that one of the things that's really important is that also this process of doing this in communities so these human scale development um workshops that are you really do them with people who live who sort of share an infrastructure is the idea right. uh share a community is that all of a sudden you're harnessing collective decision making so it's not just the burden on one person it's like oh my god what is wrong with my life i drive too much but you yeah. don't have that much freedom yeah. i mean that's an, that's another big problem with these individual well-being in, in uh, perspectives is that we're putting the burden of being happy, of being well, of being a perfect person on a single individual. And this is being well is not something that one person can achieve. It's something that we do for each other. Mm-hmm. It's something that we allow each other to do. So then it becomes a question of as a collective, as a larger group of people, can we organize ourselves differently? And I think that that's one of the, the things that becomes really important is it's about collective organization, prioritizing the things that will allow people to live well and minimizing harm, minimizing pollution, minimizing overconsumption of resources. I feel like this should be like a class in school. This makes me think of like me sitting in high school and and our, and our like, uh, our uh, homework for the day is get together with all of your friends and uh, write down all the shit that you do every day and then break them apart individually and be like, all right, you did, you drove to the store. Great. What were all the good things and all the bad things about that? And then everybody works on it together and comes to this great conclusion that, oh, right, I don't have to fucking do that. We can do this instead. We should do that. That's exactly right. And, and it's only when you have the full per, full picture of all the things you'd right, like to right. be doing and all the things you need to be doing. And then start thinking of, and you know, when you start thinking together, really interesting, different ideas come up. Because, again, relying on yourself to come up with all the solutions is a really big burden. Yes, if your friends have other ideas, then maybe you can you, you have more of a chance. Sure. And, and you end up and this can be infuriating to some folks. I mean, I love going down these rabbit holes, but I'm curious, <laughs> what were some of the most frequent follow up questions like roads you found yourself going down and exploring this? You know, were they technical, sociological, philosophical? Um, because, All. again, you start pulling the thread on some of these fucking things and, and it gets complicated. And I can see how that could be exasperating or frustrating to some folks because again, no one can be perfect in these respects as much as Brian tries. Um, (laughs) You know, I'm curious, what were some of the constants as you, as you go down these roads? This is research. We're still, it's still very much ongoing research. So, so um, what we're doing, what we're learning about is, is a bit anecdotal in the sense that we've gone into different communities. We've learned about some of them. We're looking at international data. So we're also doing quantitative measures. And in terms of the rabbit holes, I think, I think, well, one of the rabbit holes we've gone down a lot, well, but this is not as, hmm, I'm wondering how to ask, answer your question. Um, you can just ignore it too. That's what I do. Well, you know, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> You're among friends. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that one of the things that we've tried to learn about is we've tried to learn about the political economy. We've tried to learn about some of the underlying things that would drive people to answer certain ways. And so what that means is, for instance, we decided to um, look about how certain forms of dependency, for instance, on cars uh, is created. So we have this idea of the political economy of car dependency, where the product is not being able to live without a car. And what we see is you have all these production industries. We're basically looking at unfreedom of consumption. So one of the one of the stories we're told in the economy is that we are free to go. The way we express freedom is we have some money in our pocket and we go out into the market and we spend it a certain way, and then we get happiness or well-being or whatever. And the contrary is true. We're, we consume because there is production out there, and that production is constrained to have an outlet, and that's us. And if you look at the at, for instance, car dependence, 
um, you're actually looking when when you start looking at the the car industry and adjacent industries, you actually understand that they they can't degrow, for instance. They have no option but to keep growing. You look at the road industry and you see how they've lobbied to keep building roads. And they even had fake AstroTurf protests in the UK where they like went to villages and said, we want the motorway. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so, so you're, you're seeing these industries that are that really powerful, really uh, entrenched industries that make us consume. Sure. And so when we're when we're trying to face that and we're trying to understand how to consume differently and you ask people, OK, how would you like to consume differently? What would be necessary for you? You come up against these these structural. Yeah, these, almost these superstructures of the economy that really constrain that. And so that's one of the things that we're that we're really trying to think about is how to give people the tools of understanding to empower them to try to fight back against that kind of stuff. I was in a, at an event. Uh, we're going to be working in Leeds just yesterday where we were asking people in this community that has big roads going through it, lots of air pollution. Uh, it's in a valley. And uh, what do they want? And they're like, they, they want different infrastructure. Sure, they, yeah. they, they don't want those cars there. They want to have a neighborhood where they can do things completely differently. And so they can't do that by themselves, sure. but it needs to be, it needs to be, you know, if, if we're trying to satisfy human needs at lower energy use, we, we kind of have to have some political fights ahead of us, I guess is what I'm trying to sure. say. Sure. Again, we can't just put this on the individual person right. as much as, as 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 some of these things can be aimed to them. But it, this this is the sort of thing, though, where sometimes these potential complicated but but amazing answers pop up like this micro mobility trend, which I'm not sure how much that is has hit there yet. The, the, the electric bikes and scooters and things oh, yeah, that have yeah. just oh, exploded everywhere. I mean, you look, you know, it's, it's in, in America, transportation is, I think it's like 30% of greenhouse gas emissions, right, Brian, something like that. Yeah. But it's huge. But, it's huge. But, uh, I think it's, uh, what is it? 40% of at least Urban urban transportation is sub two miles, um, and if you just, if you go down the hole of doing the math on that and what just on emissions, you know what that could do for for Americans and what those can do for cities. I mean, you look at the changes that Amsterdam uh, has made over the past fifty years, and and what uh, Oslo yeah. and Madrid are doing now, and then you look at just those amazing pictures online, and we'll we'll put one in the show notes of how much room sixty cars takes versus sixty people versus one bus, you know, and it. And it just yeah. you you look at that and go like people are like oh scooters are everywhere it's like yeah but they're fucking not right but because so many more scooters <laughs> are taking up so yeah, yeah. much less space and you see them zipping by you see them zipping by as well right. and, and it's the same uh, it, electric bikes they they just they go quite fast right. and, and they go wherever they want and it's zero emissions and they're fun and yeah it's complicated in the winter but again like Norway's getting it done right that's fine it's not that cold in Los yeah, Angeles yeah, it's, it's, it's not that complicated but, but it's also it's not, like a yeah. really cool two-sided market because as much as it's radical um both uh, it, it 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 is the political fight right um but these cities recognize they need to reduce emissions both for the greater good but also for their city but it's also people yep. looking at it and going oh this is way easier i don't have to pay for parking i don't have to own and maintain this thing uh it's actually fun um and it makes Absolutely. the city a more enjoyable place so i i those sort of things i mean which have just literally sprung up in the past couple of years at least in america with the scooter thing uh have to be so just fundamentally exciting for for a mission like yours Absolutely. And you, and you see how adaptable they are to different people's circumstances. So obviously not everybody can hop on a bike, sure, but a lot of people can. Right. And for instance, um, I have friends who are engineers or architects, they work at different sites and an, on a normal bicycle, that would, that would kind of be a haul. That would kind of be an ask to ask somebody to, you know, to go from site to site to site on your bike all day long on an electric bike. It's a complete breeze. they they just do it yeah. and they get around a lot faster. I have friends who have kids and, you know, back in the days you would, you would say, oh my goodness, you know, you're not going to take your two kids to the supermarket and then to school and then go to work on a bike. Mm-hmm. And now of course they can, because it's a cargo bike. You yeah. throw your kids in it, you throw <laughs> some grocery bags on top of them. Fine. So maybe <laughs> right. they've eaten some of your chocolate by the time you get home, Big but whoop. you know, it's not, they were going to anyway. Yeah. Yeah. They were going to anyway. And it's, and it's more fun. And you see, you know, you see the little kids chattering and it's, everybody's, it, it's just a much nicer environment. It really is. So I, I think it's a, it's a, I think that that is potentially a game changing technology because it doesn't require that much energy at all. It can be very, very low carbon. Um, 
it's much healthier and it makes for nicer cities and it's it's really adaptable to many people's circumstances. So a lot of people who before couldn't really do their all of their daily activities on a bicycle, now they just can. And that's that's amazing. They just can. Right. Um uh professor who who's going to be making the the you know big sacrifices here and and how and how quickly? As we're barreling towards can I, can I can I can I uh answer honestly? Yeah, oh my please, god, please. Please, please. Um, uh, the, the gazillionaires are going to have to make the biggest sacrifices. So if we're talking about, um, great inequalities, um, the people who you, we don't require, especially if we organize ourselves better, we don't require that much energy at all. So I would say that probably Americans, so definitely at a, at a fifth of what they currently use on average could live perfectly decent lives probably can get it quite a bit lower than that. So we're really talking about huge changes. The people who will suffer the most from those changes are not the Americans um, using less energy. And I really want to push back on this point because I think it's sort of the next frontier of climate denial. And just yesterday in Congress, there was somebody giving testimony saying, oh, well, of course, um, I'll, I'll read it to you because it's right in front of me. The known risks to human well-being associated with constraining fossil fuels may be worse than the eventual risks from climate change. Oh, go fuck so yourself. Saying, it's like, uh, these people. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but that I'm seeing that more and more because they can't deny the science anymore. Yeah. They can't deny the fucking science. So they're moving to saying we need this. We, it is inevitable that we, for our well-being, need lots of energy. And that's not true. The people who need us to consume lots of energy are the barons of the existing right. fossil fuel industries. It's the oil companies, it's the gas companies, it's the pipeline companies, it's the utility companies, mm -hmm. it's the automotive industry, it's the aviation industry, it's all of those guys. They are going to suffer, but that's fine because they really need to die for us to survive. Yeah, that's the way it goes. Sorry, champ. <sighs> it's, uh, yeah, it's again, they, they, it is so past them being able to deny the science that they're going, what? else can we cherry pick right uh, yeah and and they blame consumers that's the other thing they do is like oh well you know it's consumers fault because they're consuming this stuff it's like actually people don't have that much choice or that much information because you've been denying things for so long yeah but it's possible to live well to reduce emissions to reduce energy use but the people who are going to suffer are the ones who who run these industries and profit from them absolutely um <laughs> burn it all down right uh <laughs> Uh, okay, Th this is this is uh, fantastic. So, like we said before, what we want to do uh, uh, always with these podcasts is is uh, help our listeners um, take action uh, with their voice and their vote and their dollar. Uh, so, let's in uh, hone in on, on one of those. Let's start with our voices. Uh, so, for context, one of our overarching goals is to shine a light on where we need to go as a people. So, with that in mind, what are the actionable questions the rest of us should be asking of our representatives? I think the question of how to make livable, low energy, low emission spa uh, spaces around us, so cities, counties, states, I think that that has to be at the top of everybody's mind. And I think that um, the Green New Deal is a fantastic possible way forward because it really points out that we should be able to have jobs that contribute to our well-being in the economy and that are low carbon and low, low resource use. So it's about, it's about making sure that those two elements are prioritized. We're not talking about the environment as being something separate out there where we reduce emissions and we can't change anything else. We have to change how we live our lives, how we organize our economies, and how we decarbonize and use less energy all together. So I would really push uh, discussions with representatives and city councilors and all of these things to say, what's your integrated plan? I don't want you to see you to see to have, you know, you have a low carbon plan and a jobs plan. I want the jobs to be low carbon. Right. Sure. I don't want you to see that you have an education plan and a low carbon plan. The the education has to be done in a way that the, the children can get to school on bicycle. Right. You know, so, so these things have to sort of, we can't have an incoherent, an incoherent society is a luxury. We can't really afford it. Anymore. And it's also so not this crazy uh, mess anymore. For sure. I mean, the fastest growing job in, in America is, is is wind technician, you know, and and the the biggest demand is is solar installer. It's like uh, the opportunity is now there, and it's never really existed since like World War II, where they were like, "Hey, that guy's kind of good at building tanks. We need ten thousand of them." <laughs> it's like uh, these things they they have met in the middle, and and the opportunity is there. 
to to take all these people, whether they're coal miners or other people, and to retrain them or to offer these type of uh, community college jobs out, out of out of high school to to go and make things that make you money uh, that that are in demand on um, that also help benefit the environment. Like we we can actually do that now. We just have to actually fucking commit to it. Absolutely, and that means taking money, uh, both uh, visible and hidden subsidies, away from the fossil industries and putting them to things that are much more necessary for us. And so again, this. I, I would emphasize that this is not automatic, so we really need to be picking up phones and going to offices and complaining about this and making a big fuss about it. So join the Sunrise Movement. You had uh, yes. a guest previously from on your show from the Sunrise mm-hmm. Movement. Shini, she was Go awesome. listen to that one. Do whatever she says. She should be queen of the world. That was, <laughs> yeah. that was an amazing show. Yeah, she... she uh, I think I we also said that. Yeah, she, <laughs> she should definitely be queen of again, the world. It was, it, I, I, I thought about it beforehand, but afterwards it was like, oh, she's pulling the strings for like the next two years here and Great. Let her be fucking emperor yep. for two years. <laughs> like I don't care. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I guess on that note for our vote, uh, you know, it's not an election here, even though America, since our election system is so broken, everyone's always fucking running for something and everybody's yep. committing to president here. But I, I would say along that note, it's, it's using tools like, like fivecalls.org to get in contact with your current representatives and make sure that they know that either you're supporting their, their actions, if they're on board with the green new deal or, 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 the carbon fee idea, rival idea, or or if they're not, you know, that you're aware. Give them right. help. Yeah. Give and, them help. Yeah, either give them support or give them help and, and let them know that uh, 2020 is barreling down the fucking pipe here. Um, Absolutely. Um, so what about their dollar? Uh, what are ways, again, we really want to get specific here, that people can, without overwhelming them, what are, let's say, sort of three fundamental specific ways that people can affect this Um you know, uh, figuring out the the new mortgage of 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 everyone's energy well being. What are what are three ways that they can affect that with their dollar? Here's an interesting one. So, in a personal level, the probably the best way they can affect it is by not spending that dollar. So, I really think that we need to move to to um, an economy, and there are lots. It's not just me. There's research saying this that we need to move to investment rather than consumption. That the, the balance between consumption and investment has to shift. So you can do a lot by saving money, by not using energy, by not spending lots of money on food. Stop eating dairy and meat. That's really important. Um, eat plants. So you can you can eat plants. Plants. They deserve it. <laughs> they deserve being eaten. So uh, um, so I think that in terms of consumption, definitely reducing consumption is a good idea. In terms of this way to spend uh, dollars, I think supporting political campaigns is really important. I think um, trying to make those dollars into, if this sounds crazy, I don't know, into community activities, into something where you are coming together with your neighbors, your colleagues, your friends, and you're actually trying to build this new world that we have to bring forward very fast. So if you can do that, if you can make local versions of the sunrise movement of whatever, um, uh, your eco-socialist group, your, whatever, your, whatever it is, try to do that. Try to make, um, actions follow your money. If that makes sense. Um, Because I think just, I think just, just spending money on, on a, on a widget or a gadget or this or that, that's, that's not enough anymore, sadly. Yeah. No, that's not my favorite part of your answer. Don't fucking spend. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Just, just stop. I mean, that was the statistic that came out recently. It's like in America, you know, we've had this, uh, a a great kind of crazy overextended 10 year economic boom. Uh, and the news was like, Hey, that's great. Also, it was really bad for the environment because (laughs) consumption was so high. Uh, so, and also it was really, it's also really predatory because it's, it, people are forced to, are forced into consumption patterns that they can't afford right. because they're poor, because they're not paid decent wages. So, you know, you have some people being sort of ground into debt and really sort of living insecure lives and very expensive lives because it turns out being in debt is really expensive. And then, you know, it's, so it's just, it, it's a completely stretched and unequal perspective when you look at it that way. So I, I have to ask you, uh, and this kind of leads into our lightning round a little bit, but this is sort of a different take. It, this is such a, a, a important thing that you're doing, right? I'm curious if there was some specific, and, and like you said, you bounced around academia uh, so much and, and inhaled all of these different disciplines. It, it, was there some specific moment or maybe a relationship uh, you can point to that was a, a catalyst for your actions to get you where you are today, asking these big fundamental questions? Yes, actually. I went to MIT. I did my PhD in physics at MIT. And no big deal. I was with a... I'm sorry? <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> well, let's not get into it right now. I wasn't the best physics student, but I did I did leave 
with a degree at some point. But um, I that was a wonderful place um, in terms of having student activism and so on. And one of the great people who was there was Noam Chomsky. And Noam mm. Chomsky would come wow. and give us talks like he would sort of, you know, once a month, once a year or something, he would give a big talk for people and being exposed to him and his way of understanding history, his way of understanding injustice, his way of unpicking the the story that we're told compared to the underlying reality. That's been really important for me. So that's followed me through. So I, I really have lots of admiration and respect for him. Awesome. That's pretty fantastic. That, that's a pretty, pretty fucking good answer. So we're getting close to time here. Uh, we cannot thank you enough uh, for your time today and, and for your efforts to ask these questions Greatly and, and provoke a lot of action because they are action-oriented questions, even though it can go down a lot of rabbit holes and it's complicated as hell. Um, but we're here and we're helping everybody yep. understand. Yep. Yeah, we're, we're trying. Well, I think Mostly, Julia. It, it, yep. It's always interesting to hear questions. The answers are usually something that you can do better yourself. I love that. Right, right. If you'd give it a bit of time. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, all right. We got a little bit of a lightning round here. Um, lightning who round. is someone in your life that's, uh, this is a, sort, sort of a segue from your last answer. Who's someone in your life that's positively impacted your work in the past six months? My students and my colleagues. Yeah, my students and my colleagues. Wait, is that going to be too boring? Uh, no, I think that's fair. That's very fair. Yeah, yeah right. I, I hope one of my teachers uh, answered that question one day, but they probably did. They did not. I can hope. <laughs> Um, question number two. Very yeah. <laughs> sorry, uh, uh, Professor. What do you do when you feel overwhelmed by all of the insanity? Usually, eat chocolate cookies. Mm-hmm. Do you have a no, favorite? Um, I'm what curious do... if you have a favorite. I would like. No, to no, know. no, no. Oh, I'm, I don't. No, no. Uh, also, I've gone vegan, so it, it makes things a bit more complicated. You can still eat Oreos, uh, what do I don't. do when I'm when I'm overwhelmed by despair? This is what I do, and it's been happening quite often. I wake up in the middle of the night and I worry about the state of the world because things are not going well. Mm. And what I do is I think of Greta Thunberg, I think of Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, I think of the young, mainly young women and young men, and just the people who are climate activists and social justice and activists, and the people in countries where things are a lot more difficult, like Brazil right now, and I think they get up in the morning and they fight. I mean, Greta Thunberg literally gets up in the morning. and I mean, she is unreal. She is amazing. And so I think of them and I think, okay, maybe I can do this too. That way they won't be so lonely. That's pretty (sighs) fucking awesome. Wonderful, Julia. Uh, How do you consume the news? Twitter. Twitter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You sound so excited about I, it. We get that answer a lot. <laughs> well, Twitter for, for that, Twitter is great. You follow journalists and you get the news behind the news and then they all get fired. And then you're just like, right, we're, this is again, we're all going to die because nobody's going to tell us the news that we need to know. Yep. What's, Stop firing journalists. What's the Washington Post uh, quote they started using? Uh, democracy, democracy dies in darkness, which, yep. Yeah, oh, yeah, it might have. And then nobody's been hired as a journalist, so we don't know. So, yeah. yeah. It's going uh, I think there's like three people at the Denver Post at this point. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Um, if you could Amazon Prime one book to Donald Trump, Professor, what would it be? I wouldn't bother with him. <laughs> I would not. I, I'm not interested in him. I'm interested in every, literally everybody else in the world. Uh, and if I could Amazon Prime a book to them, yeah, I was just going to say, how about be, that? Uh, it would be um, Donut Economics by Kate Rayworth, which is an amazing book, and it's already changing the world and going to change the world. Awesome. Donut economics. It's amazing. I, I heard uh, an interview with her on maybe um, maybe the Exponential View podcast. I don't know. I'll put it in the show notes and I'll send it to you. Uh, an amazing. She. Oh my god, she's so smart. It's crazy. Huh. Really, really. Yes. Yeah, cool. it, it is really fascinating stuff. Um, last question: Anything you would like to say uh, to use sort of this podcast as a vehicle to speak truth to power? Anything you haven't said yet? Thank you. Um, Yes, I think that this is going to be a big fight. And I think that we need to prepare um, for things not to go, that progress is not automatic and survival and good things happening is not automatic. And so we need to be kind to each other. And we also need to really struggle for good things to be able to happen and to be preserved. And so I don't think that we have easy years ahead, but maybe we can work together. It's like you said at the very beginning, it's not going to be easy, but that only should Maybe. embrace us, you know, make us embrace it more. Yeah, absolutely. As I tell my children, we, we do hard things. That's right. Got to do hard things. Uh, uh, fantastic. Yeah. Uh, so, professor, where can our listeners follow you online? 
uh, on Twitter at uh, JK Steinberger. And I also have, I mean, I'm easy to find. If you just Google Julia Steinberger leads, then I even have an email address if they want to get in touch or whatever. I'm happy to talk. All right. Awesome. Rock and roll. Uh, I hope they don't bludgeon you too badly. Uh, Professor. No, no, no. Thank it'll you. just be me emailing, be asking Brian. questions. <laughs> yep. Get ready for it. <laughs> Anytime. All about chocolate cookies. Oh, gosh. At, at least mean, a little bit. There's literally a box staring yeah. at us right now in the house. Um, oh, yeah. I'll, I'll, uh, I've got some vegan chocolate chip cookie thoughts I'll send your way. Don't worry. We'll work it out. Fantastic. <laughs> um, Professor, thank you so much. This was fucking great. Yes. Um, very, very We really awesome appreciate it uh, and your enthusiasm for these things. Uh, and your your eorness uh, and curiosity <laughs> it is it is awesome and contagious and and will be a much shittier place without you so so thank you so much thank you thanks to our incredible guest today and thanks to all of you for tuning in we hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant. As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. It is all the news most vital to our survival as a species. And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at importantnotimp. Just so weird. Also on Facebook and Instagram at Important Not Important, Pinterest and Tumblr, the same thing. So check us out, follow us, share us, like us, you know the deal. And please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to things like this. And if you're really fucking awesome, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the lights on. Thanks. Please. <laughs> and you can find the show notes from today right in your little podcast player and at our website, importantnotimportant.com. Thanks to the very awesome Tim Blaine for our jamming music, to all of you for listening, and finally, most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. Thanks.